Welcome to Writers' Forum, a weekly presentation of WRBH. I'm Sherry Alexander, and we want to welcome our guest today, Miriam Davis, author most recently of The Axeman of New Orleans. Welcome to Writers' Forum, Miriam. Uh, thank you for having me, Sherry. Is that okay? I, you might be Dr. Davis. Is that okay? <laughs> Miriam. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> You're, you're, you're an academic and an historian, as well as writing, of course, this more popular kind of book. Um, you studied history? Yeah. Um, I got an undergraduate degree at Emory University in Atlanta, and then I went to the University of St. Andrews for a year on a, on a Bobby Jones scholarship, and I didn't play golf, but I studied uh, uh, history there and, and Vikings and medieval stuff. Um, then I went to the University of California, Santa Barbara, um, to get my MA in history, and then I went back to the UK to do an MA in medieval archaeology at the University of York on a Fulbright, and then I went back to California to finish up my PhD in history. And then, wow! Uh, yeah, <laughs> spending I spent part of my life as an academic, so mm -hmm. I'm very impressed with your background. And I guess it was your um, academic work that led to your first book on Dane Kathleen Kathleen Kenyon. Yeah, I when I was uh, young, I always liked to read biographies, and I was interested in sort of I was brought up in the Bible Belt, so I was always interested in biblical stuff and interested in archaeology. And when I was about sixteen or so, my grandmother took me on a trip to the Holy Land, and my mother gave me for Christmas James Missioner's book, The Source, which is about um, excavating a tell in the Holy Land. And in 1978, Kathleen Kenyon died, and I read her obituary about this uh, woman archaeologist, pioneering woman archaeologist who'd excavated um, Jericho in the 1950s and Jerusalem in the 1960s. And I'm, you know, fascinated by her. And I always looked for a biography of her. I figured eventually one would come out, and one never did. And one day my husband turned to me and said, you know, you really ought to um, do it yourself since nobody else is done one. And through a series of, of almost accidents, I managed to uh, find Dame Kathleen Kenyon's niece, who was also her goddaughter, who had a bunch of family letters. And so a treasure trove for somebody yeah, like you. Absolutely. And it had letters that Kathleen Kenyon had written from her first ex expedition. It was an all-woman expedition to South Africa to investigate the Great Zimbabwe. So I have a, I had a lot of uh, letters and was able to talk about her early career, and then for her later career, there were still people around who I could interview. And how did you, <clears throat> excuse me, switch from that type of study to come up with studying the Axeman and writing about the Axeman of New Orleans? Well, um, I got a job teaching at Delta State University in Cleveland, Mississippi, and that was very much, uh, it was a teaching school. The emphasis was on teaching. And so uh, I wanted to write books that would have a, an appeal to a wider audience, not just a, a, um, an academic one. And so even Kathleen Kenyon, even though it was published by an academic press, it was geared towards people who didn't necessarily know anything about um, Middle Eastern archaeology. And then one day, my brother and I were sitting on the front porch, um, drinking cider, just shooting the breeze. And he, um, the way Southerners do. The way we do, except usually don't drink English cider, but, you know, <laughs> I developed that taste. And we were talking about serial killers because we're both, I guess, interested in the whole idea of evil. 
And he mentioned that when he, I guess in middle school sometime, he read in an anthology about this axe man who used to go about whacking, and he said it was Jewish bakers. So at that time, I was working on my biography of, of Kathleen Kenyon, but because I never pass up an opportunity to procrastinate when I was in my office, I started Googling the Axemen of New Orleans. And I found out it was, in fact, Italian uh, grocers who he attacked. And I eventually discovered that most of what you find on the web, even still, about the Axemen of New Orleans, is based on what writer Robert Talent wrote about the Axemen in the 1950s. He wrote one chapter of a book. The book was ready to hang. The chapter was The Axemen Wore Wings, and he wrote about the Axemen. And most of what you find um, is a rehash, basically, of Talent's version. But I wanted to sort of—I discovered early on that there were mistakes in Talent's versions. There were things that, that he didn't know. So I thought, there's got to be a book here. And so I thought it would be a great—what people like death and sex. So I thought serial killers would be kind of a— an interesting topic that would have a wide appeal. But I wanted to do more than just sort of summarize uh, the killings. I wanted to talk about the context of New Orleans at the time. What, where, do, where did these Italian grocers come from? Why, why Italian grocers? Um, I wanted to talk about how, what tools the police had to investigate serial murder you know, in the early 20th century. Now, this was several years ago. This took you a while to write this book. It, it did. I spent the first summer researching it in New Orleans in the summer of 2008. Um, so, and even when I eventually left my job and worked on it full time, I, um, it took me a long time. Because w one thing is, you know, I was used to writing for academics. And you get trained in graduate school to write a particular way. And it's not necessarily the most readable way for, for a general audience. And so putting this in a kind of a different voice and in writing it in a different style, uh, it took me a long time to get comfortable doing that. Now, before we get into the actual book, once you started writing it, since then, this has more become a more popular topic. Mm -hmm. I mean, I interviewed a long time ago um, Julie Smith, who had written a fictional version. Right. But now it's become a... Um, American Horror Story series, mm -hmm. and also we interviewed Gary Christ, who wrote oh, yeah. a book, Empire of Sin. Now, he hadn't written that when you started. Mm -hmm. No. You said that might have changed your uh, approach a little if you'd known somebody was going to write a book. Well, if I'd known somebody else was going to go and, and sort of research it, I might not have even thought that it needed uh, to, to be researched again. But I'm glad I did it. Um, I mean, when I, my agent alerted me, that his book had been reviewed, I think, in the New York Review of Books or the New York Times Book Review, something like that. And so I got it uh, through Amazon, you know, overnight mail to make sure I hadn't been scooped. And he he did a lot of research. He went back and read it in, in the newspapers, but I, I felt that there was still, there was plenty of room for my book. I didn't, oh, I didn't and think that was just scooped. part of his, his yeah. topic. I mean, he it, was describing the whole scene at the time, and you really right. nailed just the <laughs> axe man. Um, talk a little about, you said, New Orleans at the time. What, first of all, where did all these Italians come from? Well, in the late 19th and early 20th century, they were bringing in Italians to work in the cane fields and, uh, and in the cotton fields. 
and they were mostly Sicilians, about 80% of the Italians who came through New Orleans or, or in New Orleans uh, were Sicilians. And I had no idea about the, you know, I've been here a long time, and I thought I read a lot about it, and I had no idea that they worked in the fields before mm-hmm. they were urbanites. Well, I mean, they uh, most of them who came were illiterate peasants, basically. They were, however, not innumerate, um, and that's kind of an interesting thing that I discovered because there was a tendency to want to become independent businessmen. So they would work very hard. They would grow their own food. They would save every penny, and many of them would open their own um, businesses of some kind, saloons, fruit stands. They'd be peddlers. And they well, often, that's universal. I mean, yeah. you have the Irish do that. I remember somebody talking about that. Uh, Jewish settlers mm-hmm. were peddlers before mm-hmm. then they opened department stores and so on. So that's a universal immigration mm-hmm. story. Yeah, oh, very much so. But a lot of Italians, you say, were, became grocers in New Orleans. Yeah, because they're, at the time, there's no refrigeration. Housewives often shop twice a day. So there's a grocery on almost every corner. And it's a niche that the Italians, in some way, are in the process of taking over at the time. That is, they're, take, they're, they're running more and more of these grocery stores. So uh, an Italian grocery store owner was, was something that you could find all over New Orleans. And they, in fact, were scattered all over New Orleans. They weren't sort of confined just to one area. Now, <clears throat> we also um, have to mention the climate of the times um, when all these things took place, basically, what, 1910 or so to 1919, maybe the height of it. But um, before this, we have to talk about Police Chief Hennessy and what happened. Yes. Um, in... I'm going to forget the date now, like 1890, 1890. 1890, um, Hennessy was was assassinated. He he was um, ambushed and shotgunned. He was the New Orleans police chief, and he obviously had an Irish name. Right. But he got involved in some kind of family war between two warring Italian families. Was that it? Yes. Earlier on, there had been um, conflict between um, the Provenzanos and the Matrangas. Um, and this is like a shooting war at times. And he, now you, now you he was, caught me he by was surprise. He was going to represent the, um, pro, he was going to be a witness pro, for the Provenzano side, I think he wrote. There, there was going to be a retrial. And there was a rumor that he was going to be a witness for them. And there was a rumor that he had discovered information that might be damaging to them. And so when he was killed, there was sort of an assumption that the Matrangas had something to do with it, that Italians had something to do when with it. When he said on his deathbed or whatever That's what, people said, I mean, I won't imitate the accent, but who killed the police chief? Yeah. And, and, and then it turned out that <clears throat> of those indicted, um, there was a big lynching. Mm-hmm. Much to our shame, it was a huge, um, one of the biggest lynchings ever at that time. Oh, that's because the jury found them not guilty. Yeah. Um, and the mob was so enraged that, yes, they they um, um, stormed the prison, lynched some of them who'd been found not guilty, lynched some of them who hadn't been tried yet. Um, it was one of the 
if not the biggest, one of the biggest mass lynchings in United States history. So that so there was some ill will, let's put it succinctly. Absolutely. Toward Italians by non-Italians. So and that sets the scene for these axemen. Something else that I didn't realize <clears throat> that you, you know, it really makes a difference. Somebody that has the academic side of it as well. Mm-hmm. For instance, I, I had no idea. Everybody had an axe in their house. Yes. Well, at the time, there's no central heating. If you want heat, you have to have a fireplace. You cook with um, wood-burning stoves. So everybody would have had an axe in the backyard for chopping up wood for the stove. Now, the first series we won't spend too much time on, but there's actually two different time periods involved. The earlier ones, um, I don't know if it's your, it's not just you, but uh, they called this person the cleaver. Right. The newspapers called him the cleaver because he seemed to be using a a butcher's cleaver. Um, Stolen, often he'd then abandon it. But he was using a sort of sharp cutting implement. And then uh, the second series um, was five or six years later, Mm -hmm. and this was a person actually using the the people's own axes Mm -hmm. that were in their house. Sometimes they were more hatchet-like, but yes, they were were, um, implements that the killer found. What's the difference? Um, Well, a a smaller. I mean, there were different kinds of axes, and they had sometimes different names, but it's basically the same implement. You know, it's sort of axe-shaped. It might be larger or smaller, but it's something that would have been used to chop wood. And don't you kind of speculate, I mean, we'll talk at the end of your speculation, but from the get-go, don't you kind of speculate that there, if it was the same person, why was there this five- or six-year gap? Yeah, well, this person, if it's the same person, which I think it is, um, he obviously was skilled in burglary. He used um, a railroad, railroad shoe pen, which was a common burglary tool at the time, and the police concluded that he um, probably was an experienced burglar. My suspicion is he was in jail during that time for something else. He may well have been caught breaking into a store and been convicted of burglary. I mean, he could have gone, you know, obviously could have left New Orleans, um, but I have a suspicion he was he was in jail for something. And you do think it was the same person with both series of murders? Yeah, I I talked to a profiler um, from the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, and he also he thought that given the the specific kind of victim, given the specific kind of attack, that they were very similar, and it would be very very uh, it'd be very much against the odds for there have been two different killers who attacked Italian grocers in that way. Well, let's talk about first of all the Maggio family. Um, this was a very dramatic note was left. Mrs. M will die like Mrs. Tony, and somebody else had been murdered who uh, was the wife of somebody named Tony. Well, what happened is uh, there's a second series of X-Men attacks. Um, usually the first one gets mentioned is the Maggio attack, um, which is so awful and so bloody. But in fact, there was an earlier attack in December of 1917 on the Andalina family who lived in the Carrollton area. That was not lethal. But when the Axeman attacked the Maggio family, um, um, Joseph and Catherine, uh, it was very very lethal. He had been hit in the head with the axe. 
and had his throat slit. She, police speculated that she came around the side of the bed to defend her husband, and he slashed her several times, and he slashed her throat, and she basically choked to death on her own blood. And when the police were investigating, there was a report that something had been, some words had been chalked into the the sidewalk. We don't really know what it said because the three newspapers reported three different things. Yeah. The, the most, Imagine that. I'm a yeah. journalist. <laughs> Imagine. Um, so my, my suspicion is the journalists are getting this through the police and getting garbled, that they didn't see it for themselves. But that's just a guess on my part. And one version of it is that um, Mrs. Maggio will sit up tonight like Mrs. Tony. And... In 1912, a grocer um, named Schiambra, Tony Schiambra and his wife, had been killed. They hadn't, I don't think they'd been killed by the Axeman, although a lot of people assume they had. They, because they were shot. Um, And it's pretty clear that there was no intention to kill Mrs. Schiambra. She, uh, one of the bullets went through her husband and she she was pregnant at the time and she, she eventually died of infection. So, some people have, you know, they've come up with all kinds of speculation about what that means. My guess is that because there had been this grocer murdered several years before, that some neighborhood person thought that was uh, that it was connected and scribbled something into the sidewalk. But again, as I said, we don't really know what it said. Well, another big one that you write quite a bit about is the Cordomiglia family, am yes. I pronouncing that right? Charles, Rosie, and Mary. Yes. That was the attack in March uh, of 1919. I, I think the killer um, felt some pressure from the police in New Orleans. He crossed the river into the little town of Gretna, and he attacked another Italian grocer and his family, the Cordomiglia family. Both um, Charlie and Rosie were badly injured and taken to charity. Their daughter, Mary, who was about I guess two years old, she was she was murdered. And the New Orleans police are telling uh, the Gretna authorities that this is our this is our serial killer. And they didn't use the term serial killer because it hadn't been invented yet. They they called him a fiend. He's, they were telling him, this is our fiend, you know, who's also attacking Italian grocers. But the Gretna authorities, for whatever reason, decided that it must have been the next door neighbors who were also Italian grocers and were business rivals. And they had been involved in a legal conflict with the Cordomiglias a few months before. And so the police, um, the police chief and the sheriff become convinced that the elderly Orlando Giordano, who was 68 or 69 at the time, and his 17-year-old son Frank must have done it. But they didn't have any evidence. When Mrs. Cordomiglia, when Rosie comes out of the hospital, she is immediately arrested as a material witness and put into um, the Gretna jail, Jefferson uh, Parish Jail. And she won't, she's not released until she agrees to indict her neighbors. And then based on um, nothing more than her identification, which I, I think there's a lot of evidence that it was coerced, they are convicted, and 17-year-old Frank is sentenced to hang. But... <laughs> These things take a long time, and Rosie had second thoughts. Well, um, 
I, I think the result of this terrible incident on Rosie and uh, and Charlie is the business failed and their marriage failed. And Rosie m- moved across the river back to New Orleans. She was arrested once for, uh, for prostitution, uh, which is, I think, how bad things were. And again, I think, that, of course, this contributed to the, the breakup of her marriage. But she eventually moved over out of Gretna into New Orleans where she was working. When Frank and Orlando were convicted, the Times-Picayune journalist, Jim Colton, was convinced this was a miscarriage of justice because he's convinced there is a serial killer at work here. And he tells Frank, I'll help you. So when Rosie walked, I don't think it's an accident that when Rosie comes forward, she walks into the office of the Times-Picayune and there just happens to be a lawyer there. I suspect that Jim Colton tracked her down. Set it up. That he talked to her, that he persuaded her to come forward. What she said was that St. Joseph came to her in a dream and told her she had um, to tell the truth. And she'd been very ill. She'd been deathly ill. So I think this sort of near-death experience um, probably contributed to her rethinking the whole thing, her change of, of, of mind. So she walks into the office of the Times-Picayune and she says, look, I don't know who attacked us. Um, she doesn't say use the word coerced, but but basically she talks about how she was coerced by the Gretna authorities who just, and people in general who kept saying to her, they must have done it. They must have done it. Well, so eventually um, uh, the senior um, person, he just dies a natural death and you you trace, which is always interesting, you know, mm-hmm. what happened to Frank, and he became a successful realtor, I think he said, mm-hmm. and got married a couple of times. But meanwhile, we don't know what's going on. And all of a sudden, the thing that most of us remember when we think of the Axe Man is the letter to the Times Picayune. Right. From the foul, fell demon from hottest hell. Yes. Um, roughly a week. After the Cordomiglia attacks, when there's a real, you know, people are really up in arms about this, there's a letter published by the Times-Picayune on Sunday, March the 16th, allegedly written by the Axeman, you know, a fell demon from hottest hell. And he spends a little time ridiculing the police for trying to find him. And he says, you know, it could be much worse. I could be stalking the streets of New Orleans every night. And he gives a night, uh, Tuesday night, when he will be in New Orleans. And anybody who has jazz playing in their house will be safe. And this is what people remember about the Axeman in New Orleans. And in fact, this well, is so this remarkable. Is a, Everybody ran around playing jazz very loudly. Um, but well, you've I think an that's interesting exa- theory. I, I think that's exaggerated. Yeah. I, I think some people did this. I think maybe poor, Italian grocers did it anyway. And and you know, people who were not well educated and suspicious clearly were very frightened from from some newspaper accounts. Um, other people, I think, just did it as a joke. But so, there was a songwriter. A song came out. Um, there is a songwriter named John Joseph Davila who was active in New Orleans and who'd had a couple of hits. And he has a song come out called The Mysterious Axeman's Jazz. And it's just everywhere for a while. It becomes a big hit. And my suspicion, and I'm, it's not an accusation, so I don't, I, and unfortunately you can't libel the dead, but I have just sort of a suspicion 
that uh, that maybe he wrote the letter. And I think that whoever wrote the letter certainly meant it as a joke. Well, because the song came really close on somebody. <laughs> right. It came out right after, right after this letter. And that's one of the interesting things. Your book has um, a couple of dozen pictures, graphs. Mm-hmm. You have this song mm-hmm. um, that makes it real interesting. The, um, there's several theories as to who was the axe man. You know, was he Italian? Was he someone who hated Italians? What's the, they don't call it then, as you said, profile, but but what do you think, what's the consensus? Who was this guy? Well, um, at the time, there wasn't a consensus. Some people thought it was what they call the mafia. I mean, ever since the Hennessy, it's, it's the Hennessy killing that really popularizes the idea of the mafia in America. And people in New Orleans believed that there was a big organization called the Mafia, or sometimes they call it the Black Hand Organization. Some people thought it was the Mafia. Um, some crime writers up until relatively recently have, have called it the Mafia. Um, some policemen in New Orleans continued to believe it was just burglaries gone wrong. But there was a police, um, the Italian police officer, John D'Antonio, who, who helped investigate them, thought that there was and again, he he didn't have the term to use, but thought it was a serial killer, somebody who wanted to see blood, a kind of Jekyll and Hyde personality. A white guy, not Italian. Yeah, we know he was white. There are, there are eyewitnesses who say he was white. They describe him as being dressed as sort of a working man in working man's clothes um, in his 30s. So my theory is that at, at when the Sicilians, who are kind of darker-skinned, come to Louisiana— you know, they're not quite white and they're not quite black. They're sort of liminal. And they're sort of moving between these two groups. But they're becoming economically much more successful. And so my suspicion is somebody, you know, who is himself not very successful, something of a failure in life or feels himself a failure, has targeted this group for one reason or another. As, as I said, there's some evidence that he was a burglar. Perhaps he got caught and served a... Um, spell in prison because of an Italian grocer. You're going to have to read the book to get the full detail, but I thought you did a great job. And as I said, I've read several things about it, and I just found this very intriguing. You you have so much research. Um, One of my favorite writers of um, true crime, Harold Schechter, describes your book and says, tackling one of the most perplexing serial killer cases In the Annals of American Homicide, Miriam Davis has produced an exemplary work of historical true crime, exhaustively researched, crisply written, and as briskly paced as any fictional thriller. It is sure to stand as the definitive work on the subject. Uh, Thank you. We've been listening to Writers Forum, and we want to thank our guest today, Miriam Davis, author most recently of The Axeman of New Orleans. I'm Sherry Alexander for WRBH.